Um, I'd like to start just by offering a, a few reflections on um, where I'm coming from. I was trained initially as a Tibetan Buddhist monk in the Gelugpa school. And this is the, the rather more scholarly form of Tibetan Buddhism. Rather than um, visualizing mandalas and uh, wrathful deities, I did some of that too. Uh, my main training was in uh, logic, uh, epistemology, uh, philosophy, and doctrine. And we, uh, I spent many years doing this uh, in the form of debate. That was the, you've probably seen the uh, footage of Tibetan monasteries where the monks pair off and scream and shout at each other and uh, go through all sorts of theatrical gestures. Well, I did that. And uh, the reason for... Uh, <laughs> that um, training is to, um, is to develop a, a critical uh, analytical mind. And the focus of that analysis is Buddhist uh, teaching, usually mediated through particular classical texts. And in the Tibetan tradition, this is largely uh, texts of Mahayana Buddhism. But these are firmly rooted in the early teachings of the Buddha. There's a famous uh, verse that is often quoted by Tibetan lamas, including the Dalai Lama today. And that is that uh, one should approach these teachings, the Dharma, in the same way that a goldsmith um, analyzes a piece of metal to see whether or not it is gold. And he would do so by cutting it, burning it, and uh, there's another word I forget. But different ways of assaying the gold, and only when the person has done all these tests is he or she willing to say, yes, it is gold. And in the same way, says the Buddha, one should examine my teachings and not to accept them just because you have faith in me. Now this verse, which probably goes back to an early time, uh, is strangely not found in the Pali Canon. But nonetheless, it's, uh, I think, very much in the spirit of the Buddha's teaching that uh, he doesn't want people just to blindly accept what he says. The Kalama Sutta, the discourse to the people of, uh, of, the, uh, of, of the Kalama clan, uh, says something broadly similar, that, um, again, one should not just take these teachings on trust. One should not take them because they belong to a lineage. One should not accept them because they're found in a sacred text. Um, one should not accept them because your guru told you they were true. One should only accept them if they um, actually turn your mind to um, what is good and wholesome and uh, diminish in your mind what is dis 
uh, destructive and negative, such that you experience loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And then he says, and this is pertinent to one of the questions that came up this morning, um, he says, um, if there is rebirth, if there is a law of karma, then by practicing in this way, you will reap rewards after death. But if there is no rebirth, if there is no law of karma, then this uh, practice will lead you to flourish fully in this life. Now this passage um, certainly is found uh, in the Pali Canon, and it, I think, declares quite clearly that the Buddha was not actually primarily interested uh, in affirming or denying rebirth, etc. He was interested in how we can transform ourselves and, I would argue, our world. So I take um, from my training as a, as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, from my reading of the Pali suttas, and also from my training in uh, Korean Son Buddhism, which once again emphasizes questions rather than answers. The Son practice that I trained in was all about learning to cultivate what's called um, great perplexity by focusing on the question, what is this? Which is the very opposite in many ways to a religious tradition, Buddhist or otherwise, that sees the foundation of the practice in, the, in assenting to a certain set of doctrines. In other words, a certain set of answers to the primary question of what it means to be human. In Zen, they turn that on its head and they give primacy to the urgency of that question, which is not a question that can be solved by coming up with a clever and right answer, but it is a question that is meant to be um, uh, deepened, uh, to be made more into an embodied sense of wonder, of the mystery, and the, in some senses, uh, ineffability and sublimity of the condition in which we find ourselves that exceeds our capacity for representation. That's the, uh, that's the definition of the sublime by Coleridge, actually. I'm, I'm not quoting a Zen text. But it comes very much down to the same thing. So my writing over the past 30-odd years now has been very much, I like to think, in this spirit. I'm not interested in defending any particular Buddhist orthodoxy. Um, I'm interested in pursuing an inquiry, in some ways pursuing this inquiry not only for my own sake, but also as a kind of um, representative of my generation, of our time. And the writing is really a way of sharing what, um, where my inquiry is going. I see it as open-ended. I see every book I publish both as 
to some degree a resolution of certain questions, but also I see every book that I have written as a failure because I realize at the end that it leaves still many <laughs> questions open and still uh, worth further inquiry still. I like to think, again my critics might disagree with me here, that um, my inquiry is uh, in line with um, the tradition itself um, as that tradition seeks to find a voice and seeks to find forms of practice, seeks to uh, configure new modalities of community uh, in the kind of world we live now. I've spent quite a lot of time, uh, as I suggested perhaps this morning, in exploring Buddhist history, in trying to observe how the Buddhist tradition or the Dharma has evolved and adapted and in that process transformed itself each time that it engages with a new historical or cultural situation. So when the Dharma goes to China, it interacts with Chinese traditions, Chinese culture, Chinese arts, and so on. And through that dialogue, something new emerges. It's still recognizably the Buddha's Dharma, but it gets configured in a way that is distinctively Chinese. I think we can even go further back still and argue that early Buddhism that we find, say, in Theravada or some of the Mahayana schools is what happened when the Buddha's Dharma uh, developed its engagement with Indian, other Indian forms of thought. In other words, it became, over time, another Indian religion. When it went to Tibet, it engaged with shaman uh, shamanic uh, animist cultures and generated what we call Tibetan Buddhism. And all of these things are highly distinctive, but at the same time, they still carry the core uh, values, the core insights of the Dharma. In this sense, the Dharma survives not by preserving something intact and unchanging, which frankly would be somehow at odds with the very core insights of the Buddha that everything changes, nothing is essentially uh, identical, uh, there's no inherent existence in any particular form, and that every form that comes up is somehow imperfect. Uh, but it is adapted to the new situation at hand. Therefore, what is going on today in the encounter between the Dharma and our modern secular world is really nothing different. Uh, Buddhism has done this before in different contexts, obviously, but what it, uh, I think, allows, uh, it allows for a certain confidence that the Dharma has sufficient flexibility and integrity to keep reinventing itself afresh. And that's how it survives, not by preserving, but by reimagining uh, another configuration of the teachings 
in relation to a new time. And again, if it goes on further, in another 500,000 years or whatever, same thing will go on. Um, each generation is tends to be very uh, uh, unconsciously um, uh, committed to its particular worldview. And we must be careful not to raise the modern scientific worldview to being you know, you know, the final word on everything. Uh, it's not. It can't be. Uh, it's impossible. But it is the context within which our culture uh, is largely um, oriented. And that's the frame within which it can work. So the wise of the world would today be people who understand the cosmos, the universe, planet Earth, evolution, uh, in the ways that they do. And that is adequate to configure another discourse of the Dharma. But that too will change. It's all tentative, it's all contingent, it's all changing, and it's necessarily imperfect. So I think largely because of being raised in this culture, um, I find myself giving uh, considerable importance to the understanding of history. And we gave one example of that uh, this morning. Another example is to uh, realize that for many of us, um, when we say, the Buddha said, as most Buddhists will repeatedly um, uh, go on saying, we want to know, well, who was this person, the Buddha? Who was this man? What sort of world did he live in? What sort of um, uh, society? What kind of religious beliefs? What kind of um, communities? What kind of economics was operative at his time? What you know, context did he teach in? In other words, the historical Buddha did not one day sit beneath a tree, uh, achieve enlightenment, and then just opened his mouth and started talking. He only ever addressed other living beings, humans, in the world that he shared with them, and thereby his teaching is dialogical. It's always, a, it's many of the suttas, not all of them, but the large majority, I suspect, are actually responses to particular questions that arose in his time. And I can't quite see how it could be otherwise. And many of the discrepancies we find in the suttas are because he's addressing different audiences. Uh, sometimes it's monks, sometimes it's lay people, sometimes it's kings, sometimes it's doctors. And he adapts the teaching to meet the needs of his particular um, interlocutor. So we see, I think, very much in this process that um, as Western people, uh, we privilege uh, the understanding of um, historical consciousness. Uh, we want to know what was going on in this person's life and times, and to give perhaps uh, those that specific understanding of the Buddha and the Dharma a kind of uh, importance in terms of its being the original teaching. Um, there's a danger, of course, that we think that everything that is earlier is somehow truer and better. That's clearly a dangerous 
assertion to make. We would then end up as fundamentalists. But it is, I think, helpful in giving us uh, a basis on which we can begin to rethink and re-articulate these teachings and practices for our time. Now, one of the um, core ideas um, that is certainly central to all forms of Buddhism as we know them today is the idea of what we call enlightenment. Now, I prefer to use the word awakening, which is, um, I think, more literally correct. But there is an enormous um, uh, disagreement amongst uh, between the different schools of Buddhism as to what this constitutes. When I was trained as a, in my Tibetan tradition, um, enlightenment was understood as the direct, non-conceptual understanding of emptiness. Emptiness being understood as the lack of intrinsic existence with any, within any person or phenomenon. And I think it's a very good philosophy. I don't have any issues with it as a philosophy. But I'm not persuaded any longer that that is what the Buddha meant by enlightenment or awakening. In my Zen training, I was taught that awakening had to do with gaining, again, a kind of direct, non-ordinary insight into the fundamental nature of mind. Um, and again, I would currently question that that is actually what the historical Buddha meant. Uh, we find actually neither claim is supported by any of the Pali suttas or discourses. So this uh, question, what is awakening, takes us back to look afresh at the earliest preserved records that we have which are found in the Pali Canon, and also in a Chinese translation of the same material, but I'm going to leave that to one side. Now, to, So in other words, um, in trying to uh, get back to basics, um, I uh, seek out in these texts, according to certain criteria that I sketched this morning, um, passages that would seem to me to have a good chance of being reliable, at least of a, as a record of what the early community understood, whether or not these are verbatim transcripts of what Gautama actually said. One of the texts that I take to be very central uh, to my rethinking of the Dharma is the uh, discourse given to the five ascetics, which is known as the a turning of the wheel of Dhamma. It's regarded as the first of the Buddha's uh, teachings. Um, and it's very brief. It's about two or three pages in translation. And it um, concludes, well, not, in, not exactly concludes, the penultimate paragraph um, of the text says, it, and this is the Buddha speaking, it was not until my knowledge and vision was entirely clear about the f 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths that I could consider myself to have attained a perfect awakening in this world. 
Okay, I'm going to take that as the starting point. It's got a very good pedigree in terms of its, uh, its, its role in the, in the canonical tradition. It's a text accepted by all the Buddhist schools. There's something like 17 different translations or versions in Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese, and other lesser-known languages. So it's a kind of a bedrock text. When my knowledge and only when my knowledge and vision were entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four noble truths, could I consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world? Now, compared to what I was trained to understand as the awakening, um, uh, this is obviously you know, not saying the same thing. It, there's no mention of emptiness, there's no major of mention of the true nature of mind. There's no mention of anything like ultimate truth, for example, or the absolute, or the unconditioned, or the deathless. Um, instead, we have 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. Now, I think the first thing to perhaps point out here is that this awakening, therefore, is not understood as gaining a kind of mystical or privileged insight into the nature of some ultimate reality. I mean, emptiness or mind or Buddha nature or fill in the gap. It's not getting enlightened about one particular and particularly central and important truth. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it multiplies it into 12 and these twelve refer to each of the four truths, four noble truths. So what are these twelve aspects of the four noble truths? I'm going to assume that we know what the four noble truths are. Suffering, the origin of suffering, the ending of suffering, and the path that leads to the ending of suffering. That's the standard um, uh, definition. But when we think of them in terms of these 12 aspects, they are explicitly um, being presented not as truths, but as tasks to be recognized, performed, and accomplished. And in the paragraph that precedes the penultimate paragraph that I've now recited twice, the Buddha spells out what those tasks are. Uh, the first task is dukkha parinya, uh, to uh, fully understand, to comprehend, or in more colloquial English, to embrace dukkha, suffering. Again, the way he defines suffering means that it's not just about painful physical or mental states, it's, a, it's shorthand for the tragic condition of birth and death. And everything that we experience, having been born as a mortal creature who will die. That's dukkha. The challenge is to comprehend that. It's to recognize that there is dukkha, to recognize that it is to be comprehended, and to recognize in the Buddha's case, that he has 
comprehended it. So recognition of, that it is there, that there's something to be done to it, to comprehend it, and the Buddha is the one who has comprehended it. So you see there are three phases in each uh, truth. Recognizing it, comprehending it, and in the Buddha's case, realizing that it can be comprehended. One, two, three. Three times four equals twelve. Right? Four truths times three phases equals twelve. Okay, so the awakening is uh, achieved through recognizing, performing, and accomplishing a specific task in relation to each truth, in inverted commas. It's actually not the truth that is to be uh, comprehended. It is dukkha that is to be comprehended. The truth language, when we look into it more closely, becomes very prob problematic. It seems as though it's somehow inserted to privilege this as a truth, whereas in fact, what is important is not understanding the truth of suffering, it's understanding suffering. Now to me, that's an important distinction. It's, truth implies something slightly more abstract. But again, we can think this through for ourselves. Okay, so let's now go on to the other three truths, quote-unquote. The second uh, is that of tangha, craving, grasping, different translations. Craving is to be recognized. Craving is to be let go of. And the Buddha is one who has let go of craving. So dukkha is to be comprehended, craving is to be let go of. Two different actions altogether. Third truth is the dukkha niroda, is, is the cessation, the stopping, the ceasing. And that is described, as I mentioned this morning, not as the ceasing of suffering, but as the ceasing of craving. That's the official view. I'm not making this up. And that uh, stopping of craving is something that is to be recognized. It is something to be beheld. Again, a term that's not widely used elsewhere in Buddhism. Sachi karoti means to see with your own eyes the stopping of craving. And the Buddha is one who has beheld the stopping of craving. The fourth truth is the path. The path is the Noble Eightfold Path and that is something to be recognized but as a task it is to be cultivated and the Buddha is one who has cultivated the Eightfold Path. So the path um, is a practice. The path is to be literally brought into being. That's what bhavana means. We talk of metta bhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness, but the Buddha speaks of magga bhavana, the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. 
Bhavana is something like practice, perhaps in more colloquial English. The path is to be practiced. The path is to be brought into life. And that means the way we see the world, the way we think about it, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we apply ourselves with effort, the way we pay attention with mindfulness, and the way we concentrate, the way we uh, uh, focus our attention. All of these are practices. All of these are to be cultivated. In other words, uh, the fourth um, truth, quote-unquote, has to do with cultivating, bringing into being a way of life. And this, again, is not that far away from the Greek idea of uh, learning how to flourish as a human being. The Eightfold Path has to do with every aspect of our humanity. We might therefore think of the Buddha as the person who exemplifies in his time and place what it means to be wholly human. Now, the next question I think to ask is how are these tasks connected one with each other? Are they four totally discrete and separate things? Or are they describing uh, some kind of sequence? Or are they perhaps describing four aspects or facets of a single practice? I think we can understand them helpfully in all of these ways. But once we start to um, place the emphasis on... Um, uh, this fourfold task or these four tasks, we start to move away from the idea that awakening or enlightenment is about gaining privileged insight into some uh, final truth or reality, whatever we call it, but we see it far more as the engagement with a particular way of life that actually has a transformative effect on how we see, think, speak, act, work, and basically live attentively with focus um, in response to the conditions of our experience. So the idea of awakening, therefore, um, uh, 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 in a sense, kind of explodes in a way from a single mystical insight into a complex relationship with the totality of our experience. Now, quite a different picture to the one that we find in many Buddhist traditions. Um, when I first began to uh, become aware of this, and um, I did so actually, I first became aware of this when I was studying with my Tibetan teachers. Um, I first became aware that each truth had to be understood in a particular way, uh, in one of the texts we studied um, with Geshe Rabton when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And it struck me then. It struck me because it was, wait a minute, I haven't heard this before. And we soon brushed over it and went on to something else. But it stuck in my mind. It was on reading many years later the letters of a Theravada bhikkhu called Nyangavira Thera. He was an Englishman. He became a bhikkhu 
1948. He was uh, ordained by uh, Jnana Tiloka, the man I mentioned this morning, one of the first uh, Western bhikkhus. And he spent the rest of his life in Sri Lanka. He became a hermit. Uh, he was a highly educated guy. Uh, he had uh, studied at uh, Oxford. He was educated uh, in, in, in math, in philosophy, uh, and also he was a linguist. And he devoted the last years of his life to doing something similar in trying to uncover what lay at the core of the teachings of the Buddha as recorded in the Pali Canon. And uh, a collection of his writings was then posthumously published under the heading of Clearing the Path. Um, this is available online. You can go to nyanavira.org, uh, of course, to uh, find out what he said. And you can, there's some beautifully published editions of the text too. But in any case, it was in his writings that I first came across uh, uh, an emphasis on this uh, idea of the Four Noble Truths as a sequence of tasks. And it's from Nyangavira that I got the word task. He said these four uh, tasks are the, uh, or these four practices, let's say, are the optimal tasks for a person's performance. That was the language he used. And he offered a very compelling, although slightly, um, slightly irreverent image. He compared this to the experience of Alice in Wonderland. Alice falls down the rabbit's hole, as we all know, finds herself in these kind of weird subterranean corridors, goes into a particular room, and in that room is a table, and on that table is a bottle, and written on the label of the bottle is the, are the words, drink me. So the label doesn't tell you what's in the bottle. It tells you what to do with it. It's an instruction. So Nyanavira used this as an, as a, as a, as a, an image for how Buddhists have tended to think of the Four Noble Truths as descriptions of what suffering is, what craving is, what the stopping of craving is, what the path is. In other words, descriptions of what's true and real. And this is really the, the mindset that comes quite naturally when we think in terms of Four Noble Truths. We think of these truths basically as... Um, as propositions that accord um, with a state of affairs in the world. Um, in Western philosophy, this is called the correspondence theory of truth. In other words, statements are true because they correspond with a state of affairs in the world. And Buddhist uh, doctrine and Buddhist metaphysics is basically built on that foundation. So to become a Buddhist means that you have to believe that existence is suffering, that the origin of suffering is craving, that the ending of suffering is the ending of craving, and that the way to the ending of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. If you can sign up to that set of truth claims, then you are um, a Buddhist. Uh, if you disagree with them, then you can't be a Buddhist. Buddhism, therefore, becomes a belief system. 
It can be a very useful belief system. It can uh, give you a foundation for your practice. Uh, uh, all Buddhist traditions, of course, are committed very much to the idea of practice. But that practice is framed by what I would argue are essentially metaphysical claims. If, on the other hand, you think of uh, these uh, truths as tasks to be recognized, performed, and accomplished, then the, the, uh, uh, what matters is um, what you do with them. It's got nothing whatsoever to trying to persuade yourself that they're true. Scholars such as uh, K.R. Norman, who's a specialist in Pali and related languages of that period, uh, has written a paper uh, in 1992, I think, in which he uh, analyzes this text and concludes, quote, in the original version of this first discourse, the word Arya Satyang, noble truth, did not occur. It was built on at a later date when Buddhism, I feel, underwent what we might call a metaphysical turn. It shifted from being primarily founded on a set of practices to do to a set of truth claims to assent to and believe. So my own um, reading of the tradition uh, goes back to a very early source, but... Um, rethinks it in terms of it being about uh, a kind of pragmatic ethics, a way to practice, a way to live that has hopefully a positive outcome in the quality of our experience rather than a practice that leads us to confirm the truths of Buddhism. And that to me makes a huge difference. I think the whole... Uh, the whole practice becomes configured on a different foundation, a foundation of, 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 of ethical and pragmatic um, things to do as opposed to a foundation of truths to accept as being uh, correct. So um, let's just now, in the next uh, in the conclusion, including part of this talk, uh, just try to sketch what this might mean in practice. And in fact, um, by a happy coincidence, this is what my book talks about. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to know more, <laughs> um, and, um, uh, and, 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 and perhaps get a much uh, more detailed uh, argument as to how this might actually be uh, helpful, uh, then I would uh, encourage you very strongly to buy this book. <laughs> and if you don't want to buy the book, you can actually listen to a series of nine talks I gave in Barry last week uh, called The Solar Buddha uh, that are available for free on Dharma Seed. Won't cost you a bean. But then, having listened to those, you probably will want to buy the book anyway. <laughs> Anyway, I'm joking. So, um, I like to think of these uh, four tasks, as, as Jnanavira and I would call them, um, as actually kind of facets of a single task, which we might call 
the practice. The practice for me is grounded in uh, embracing fully, wholeheartedly, uh, and empathetically the condition in which we find ourselves at any given moment. And I feel that pretty much every form of Buddhist meditation is a way of doing this. Whether it's practicing mindfulness, just being present, non-judgmental, attentive, even in a completely non-Buddhist setting, you are in being already introduced to this uh, attitude, this sensibility of being in the world in which you uh, seek to uh, fully embrace what's going on in a non-judgmental way. If you practice vipassana, and again I'm using the word in its more technical sense, um, it has to do with systematically attending to key features of this experience that we habitually either overlook, ignore, or deny. Namely, that experience is anicca, it's tra transient, it's changing, it's shifting, that it is dukkha, which here means more, um, in a sense, unsatisfactory, impermanent, because it is uh, anicca. Uh, things are dukkha because they don't last, basically. That they change in the shift. That doesn't mean that there is no joy uh, in life. Of course there is. But that joy is something that will fade and will pass. And perhaps even more crucially, recognizing that this experience that we're undergoing is not essentially me or mine. That we cannot capture it in the language of uh, self. We cannot capture it, if we go a bit deeper still, in the language of separate things. That what we open our experience to is the profound um, seamlessness, interconnectedness, uh, um, uh, interpenetration, as the Chinese call it, of all things. So in the practice of vipassana, we systematically erode the habit of grasping at permanence, the habit of trying to isolate and freeze those things that we associate with well-being and happiness, and the tendency to always think of experience in terms of our own self-interest, in terms of what's in it for me and mine. And as we do this, this has a consequence not just of changing the way that we see ourselves in the world, it also changes the way we feel about ourselves and the world. It has an affective quality. In other words, when the, when the anesthetic of ego begins to uh, be worn away, it allows us to become more vulnerable, more sensitized, more present uh, to the suffering of others, the suffering of the world itself. So this embracing life is uh, not about seeing the world in a certain way with wisdom, but also about opening our heart to uh, become sensitized to the world as 
a field of compassion. So wisdom and compassion are right there at the outset in this practice, this first task. And I would also argue that this practice has an aesthetic dimension. It opens up the world as a world of beauty and possibly more um, significantly as a world of sublimity. Sublimity, I mentioned this morning, is, or was it this afternoon? I can't remember. It has to do with uh, uh, getting into a frame of mind in which, um, as again Coleridge described, that, uh, the, 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 that suspends the power of comparison. Um, in other words, the, uh, the conceptual uh, picturing of life is incapable of actually capturing the living, breathing processes of experience and life as such. And that, to me, is an aesthetic dimension. The Zen tradition is probably uh, the best developed in uh, achieving this aesthetic sensibility through uh, its paintings, its haiku, uh, its poetry, its literature, its koans. And it's the only of one of the Buddhist traditions that considers the practice of art or the arts as integral to the practice of the Dharma. Uh, and to me, that's one of the reasons, again, why Zen uh, became so important in my practice. It opened up Dharma practice as a practice of the arts. And at some level, to think of one's practice as a whole as more... Uh, more um, as being better compared to an artistic practice than a scientific practice. Um, I'm somewhat uncomfortable when Buddhism is presented as a science of the mind, as though it has a sort of tech, a spiritual technology that can solve the problems of life by a kind of almost clinical analysis of the problem and a somewhat, uh, uh, you know, highly stratified um, uh, application of certain meditative techniques to solve the problem. There is a part of the practice that I think can be thought of in that way, but it risks the um, occluding what for me is primarily something more akin to the practice of an art. So um, the raw materials of our practice, uh, the equivalent of the, the clay of a sculptor or the paints of a, of, a, of a painter are our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our inclinations, and our consciousness. This is the raw material that we work with, we transform, and we um, uh, engage with um, in our practice of the Dharma. The second task is to turn that comprehension, that embracing of life inward to include the, um, the reactions that come up when this organism encounters an environment. Remember, in the Buddhist teaching, this environment is not just an external environment, but he includes also the inner environment of our mental, emotional, and spiritual life. 
And that's the object of what is called manovisnana, the mental consciousness. So we are beings that are constantly in touch. We're constantly impacted, not according to what we choose, but simply uh, through the way that life unfolds in time. We are impacted by sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and ideas and emotions and feelings and so forth. And this is constantly um, uh, uh, happening. And as we all know, if we've done Vipassana retreats, this contact triggers a certain feeling, tone, or Vedana, that's, that's somewhere along the spectrum from agony to ecstasy. And depending on that feeling tone, we then react. And in terms of the um, Buddhism as a therapy, what the Buddha is concerned with is not every reaction, uh, because as human beings we also react with intelligence and generosity and kindness and wisdom. These are also natural reactions. And if we react in such ways, then these are clearly qualities that need to be developed. They need to be cultivated. And in that sense, they fall under the remit of the fourth task, the cultivating of the Eightfold Path. But as a therapist, as a doctor, the Buddha is primarily concerned with those reactions that are destructive. And these are traditionally called greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes uh, these are talked of as three poisons, but in the earliest texts, they're spoken of as three fires. And um, again, we have this famous sermon, the fire sermon, where the Buddha says, the world is burning. Burning with what? Burning with greed, burning with hatred, burning with delusion. Uh, the eyes are burning, the ears are burning, the nose, the tongue, the mind, the body are burning, sights are burning, smells are burning, etc., etc. The whole world is on fire. And it's on fire with these destructive emotions. And these destructive emotions are another way of talking about craving. Now, I don't find craving as a terribly useful term to convey this range of what I now talk of as reactivity. Um, craving is too weighted in terms of desire. When we think of these uh, destructive emotions as reactivity, it ranges all the way from destructive desires to fears to destructive hatreds and to destructive egoism or narcissism in which everything becomes contracted into uh, me and mine. That's delusion, roughly stated. So the practice of the second task is to let go of reactivity. Not to let go of all reactions and responses, but to let go of those reactions which are destructive. Now in what sense are they destructive? They're destructive, I would argue, because they hinder and block us from living fully. They are described by the Buddha as being repetitive. 
They just keep going round and round in circles. They can be highly energized. We can expend a lot of energy getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't like. But the chances are, once we've got what we wanted, got rid of what we don't like, we end up back where we started and then the next cycle begins. We feel something is missing from our lives, so we try to get something to fill that gap. Uh, we feel afraid, we feel insecure, so we find someone to blame, we find someone to, to hate, to direct our anger and our frustration, and so the whole process keeps on turning. And these are entirely natural processes. They're not immoral or wrong. They're just what organisms do when they are driven by the urge to survive and um, have inherited over millions of generations uh, this strategy of greed, hatred and self-interest. That's what has enabled the human race um, to be, in a sense, too successful in uh, getting what it wants and getting rid of what it doesn't like. The problem now is this um, these forces, um, even though they might have achieved a really rather, you know, we have a fairly privileged existence in this uh, kind of society, and yet we have still unsatiable desires. We have um, deeply seated tendencies to hatred and anger and fear, and we are egotistic to the point of being narcissistic. And we're deeply frustrated and at some levels unfulfilled. So the problem that the Buddha is addressing is the problem that is the legacy of our evolution. Traditional Buddhism would explain this in terms of the legacy of beginningless past lifetimes. In some ways it comes down to the same thing, it's just a different theory, that to account for the same problem. And both of them have to do with our distant past, whether in past lives or in past forms of um, animal and human existence. I don't think it makes a big difference, frankly. The second task is to not get caught up in these reactive patterns, but to see them for what they are and to let them be. To, uh, to recognize that they will arise and having arisen, they will pass away. And that arguably, is the core of Dharma practice. Uh, and in fact, one of the five ascetics who listened to this talk understood what the Buddha was getting at. And it said that his Dharma eye opened. And as an expression of his understanding, he said, um, whatever is subject to arising is subject to passing or ceasing. And these two words, arising, is samudaya, the, the, the term used in the second task, what arises, and the next term, niroda, ceasing, is the term used in the third task, to behold the ceasing. So again, it's the ceasing of what arises, and what arises is reactivity. If we let the reactivity play itself out, by not identifying with it, then by its own nature, it will come to an end. Of course, it'll start up again too, probably. 
but that's actually you know the, the, the whole point is to realize that our conditioning as hu as creatures as animals as human beings our social conditioning as well our psychological conditioning is makes us extremely predisposed to these patterns continuously re-arising and often prompting us to get involved in destructive thinking and speaking and acting. So the, the, the fourfold task turns on the hinge of recognizing that what arises is something that ceases. But again, it's very specific, not anything that arises, but reactivity, destructive emotion. It arises, it'll cease. And the third task is to behold the ceasing, to actually consciously valorize and affirm those moments in our experience when we're not reacting. Again, sometimes Buddhism gives you the impression that human beings are kind of reactivity machines, that it's just constant greed, hatred, delusion, greed, hatred, delusion. But that's actually not the case. Um, we have periods in our lives in which we're relatively at peace, we're content. When we meditate, for example, we become calm, we become still, become clear. Um, when we're engaging with suffering of others, animals, the environment, whoever, we exhibit extraordinary uh, degrees of selflessness and compassion and love. We don't have to become you know, good Buddhists to do this. We do it anyway. So the practice is very much about working with what it is within us that uh, limits and blocks and uh, gets in the way of our being fully human. So to consciously valorize and, in a sense, uh, learn how, what it feels like in an almost physical way to be in a non-reactive space. That's, I think, very crucial. Uh, to really enhance our sensitivity to our non-reactive uh, potential. And that non-reactivity, that stopping of greed, of hatred, of delusion, is the definition the Buddha gives for nirvana. Nirvana is the stopping of those three things. Now, in an ultimate and final sense, it means that they stop for good. And that's the condition of the arahant. But in terms of moment-to-moment -moment experience, it's about valorizing those moments of stopping, however fleeting, however uh, tentative, that we can be open to and present with right now. So in some senses, nirvana is a potential, a capacity that's open to us in each moment, each moment where we're non-reactive. And that doesn't even mean that it requires there to be no reactivity going on. If we are aware and mindful and, uh, and, and focused on what is arising within us as a reaction, that still focused attention is the non-reactive awareness 
which is somehow nirvanic. So even as, as Huineng says in the Platform Sutra, this is Zen text, he says, even in the midst of thinking, there can be no thought. In other words, you can be attentive of thinking, or here perhaps reactivity, and thereby not be of it, but be somehow embracing it, be present to it, to know it. In mythological language, the Buddha describes this process in terms of the figure of Mara. Mara is like the demonic, a bit like Satan in Christianity. And Mara um, is overcome uh, not by deleting him, but by knowing him. So in the dialogues with Mara, the Buddha will usually conclude by saying, I know you, Mara. And once you know this reactive process, it ceases to have the same power over you as when it is um, an unconscious, uh, misunderstood and overwhelming uh, pattern of behavior. It's the knowing. Uh, this is again Freudian almost, that the, un, the, uncon the id should become ego. The unconscious needs to become conscious. It's that consciousness that's transformative, um, not sort of getting rid of the impulses or the instincts or the drives themselves. It's learning to live with the devil, uh, which I wrote a book about too, the, uh, <coughs> some years back. But that, again, was a very important step on this journey, understanding the mythology of Mara, which I think is a very rich and... Uh, potent way of understanding these processes that's not just a kind of psychological analysis but actually uh, speaks in terms of imagery, of myth, uh, of um, uh, personified characters like Mara. It's somehow more three-dimensional. And this uh, third task therefore is acquainting ourselves, familiarizing ourselves, getting a feel for this non-reactive space. That's what we develop in meditation, I would argue. It's the cultivation of a non-reactive space of mind. And that is not, however, the goal of the practice. That is actually where the possibility of another way of being in the world becomes uh, available. In other words, we can learn to live in terms of how we think and speak and act and so on, in a way that's not conditioned by our reactivity. In other words, we can move from a life of reactivity to a life of responsiveness, where we respond to situations with clarity, with uh, non-reactivity, with empathy, with sensitivity, and then we choose our words, our deeds, our acts, um, in a way that's not uh, governed by our fears, our attachments, or our hatreds. And that is the Noble Eightfold Path that we cultivate and develop through the course of our lives. And that Noble Eightfold Path culminates in mindfulness, in concentration. But what are we mindful of? What do we concentrate on? Well, that brings us back to the situation at hand, the here and now, life, or what the Buddha calls dukkha. So we 
we're describing here not a linear path that starts with ignorance and ends with enlightenment, but we're describing what's more akin to a positive feedback loop that is really uh, active in each moment and that is a, a kind of framework for living fully in response to the situation at hand. And what matters is not whether we're on the path to enlightenment, which hopefully we are, but what really matters is how we deal with this situation we're in at the present moment. And we learn from our mistakes. We don't always, we sometimes blow it. Uh, we don't say or do or, you know, respond in a useful way at all. We sometimes make matters worse, even with the best intentions. The, pave, the, pa the path to hell, they say, is paved with good intentions. We can't reduce ethics or morality to good intentions. It has to do with acting on those intentions. It has to do with then learning from the, uh, the, the effects or the consequences that those actions then lead to in terms of our, ourselves, in terms of others, in terms of the world, in terms of the environment, if you wish, as we would be more and more conscious today. So um, I'm going to stop here. Um, I hope that's given you uh, at least a sense of how I'm rethinking the Dharma for a secular age, as is the subtitle of the book, and um, to also understand where it's coming from, both from my own training uh, in critical thinking, in questioning, uh, in the study of, of, of these classical texts, in an historical awareness, and also my commitment to the practice of Dharma as a, as a creative and imaginative process akin to art. We'll stop here. We'll have a five-minute break. Please stand up, uh, stretch your limbs, um, wiggle your... We'll stop here. We'll have a five-minute break. Please stand up, uh, stretch your limbs... Okay, let's uh, reconvene. We have um, um, a little bit over half an hour. I had wanted to stop at 4.30 to allow the opportunity to sign books. Depending on how this goes, we can go a little bit over there. But um, let's open this up for um, your comments, your questions. Uh, try to keep them as brief as possible, and I'll try to keep my answers brief so that more rather than less of us can have a chance to speak. Where are we going to begin? Uh, there. Uh, Robert, uh, who's, where's the mic? It's coming. There, there we go. Um, in terms of re reactivity and the Buddha, is there any record of the Buddha being reactive himself? <laughs> Uh, I, yes, I'm asking because it, it it's there are the, the twelve aspects. Yeah, um, the uh, well, I can think of one example. When the Buddha was about at the age of seventy-two, his cousin Devadatta said, um, uh, "You are now very old. You've done a great job, um, but I think it's a would be wise if you now retired and lived a life of contentment and ease. And uh, I would be only too happy to take over con uh, uh, control of the monastic order. 
And the Buddha replied, um, I would not even hand over command of the monastic order to Sariputta and Moggallana, in other words, the, the two top monks, let alone a gob of spit like you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, maybe that wasn't reactive, but, <laughs> but like it kind of sounds like it. And, <laughs> I want to ask you about your engagement with other writers outside of the Buddhist tradition uh -huh. that you discuss quite often in your talks and also in your books. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of Montaigne, um, of Nietzsche, Heidegger, Richard Rorty. Um, and I want to know the degree to which they've affected your thinking about Buddhism and the degree to which you think that they have arrived at something like uh, um, realization um, that you would describe as, as uh, that they've arrived at a realization of the Dharma by other means. Uh, this is, again, a question that we could spend a lot of time on, but I think it's, I, I haven't mentioned this in, in what I've been saying today, so I think it's important to flag the fact that my uh, process of inquiry and study and writing and so on has not been exclusively informed by Buddhist sources, although they've probably been very central, but I've been much influenced by the work of um, uh, theologians uh, and philosophers from the Western tradition who in many respects um, have you know, struggled with the same kind of questions. You know, how can we articulate a practice of philosophy or a practice of Christianity uh, in the kind of world we live in today? And um, way back in the, um, in the, nine, the late 1970s, when I lived in Switzerland, uh, where my Tibetan uh, monastery was for some years, um, I started reading uh, Christian theology, particularly the work of Paul Tillich, um, who was uh, a liberal Lutheran theologian in Chicago. And what he tried to do was to take the ideas of uh, existentialism and uh, phenomenology, uh, the work of Heidegger and others, and use those uh, ideas to reframe uh, and rearticulate what he understood as the practice of the uh, Christian faith. And I found this very revealing. And I consciously adopted a similar stance uh, in that of um, likewise referring to such thinkers uh, as a way to perhaps help re-articulate uh, a Buddhist tradition. Now this is again no different from what went on in China say. When Buddhism went to China then the Chinese Buddhists who were informed by the teachings of Taoism, of Lao Tzu, of Chuang Tzu and others, they drew inevitably upon their own philosophical heritage as a way to somehow answer the question, well, what does this mean for us, this Indian religion? And what resulted is something, things like Zen, for example. Um, so um, over the years, I've continued uh, to read in theology, in philosophy. Um, I've been influenced both by thinkers within the phenomenological tradition, like Heidegger, but also more recently by thinkers within the pragmatic tradition, uh, starting from William James, uh, particularly the work of uh, the American philosopher Richard Rorty that was mentioned, 
Um, and this idea of pragmatism has been very influential in my moving from what I call a truth-based metaphysics, which is that of the Four Noble Truths and the Two Truths, to a task-based ethics. Um, and that's definitely come through my exposure to the, uh, the critical traditions of Western pragmatism. I think the Buddha was essentially a pragmatist. I think he was an anti-essentialist, which it do perhaps doesn't come as such a surprise. Um, and in some ways, those currents of thought and practice we find very uh, clearly developed in thinkers of our own time who know nothing about Buddhism. And that's, in a sense, a help uh, because they're not sort of you know, carrying certain ideas about Buddhism in the background, but they're thinking very much in terms of their own traditions. The extent to which they would could be considered as awakened or enlightened in a Buddhist sense is a question I'd rather leave hanging. But uh, except to point out that uh, in Buddhist tradition itself, there is room for that kind of uh, reading. Uh, it comes in the figure of the Pacheka Buddha, sometimes translated as the solitary Buddha. Uh, all Buddhist traditions recognize that there are figures called solitary Buddhas who arise in the world uh, uh, at times when there is no Buddhism. There's no teacher like Gautama who's taught the Dharma and it's become established in communities and so on. And we could read that as in parts of the world that were never exposed to Buddhism. And let's take the figure of Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne, 16th century high Renaissance figure known for his brilliant essays. Um, I think Montaigne is a pretty good candidate for a Pacheka Buddha, someone who arrives at very similar insights uh, that we find in the Buddhist tradition and yet knows nothing whatsoever about it. He lives in a tower. He's meditating all day, basically, reflecting, writing. And the only possible connection to Buddhism is that Montaigne saw himself as trying to practice Pyrrhonian skepticism. He saw himself as a Pyrrhonist. He was of the first generation of Renaissance thinkers uh, who had access to the recovered texts of uh, ancient Greece uh, and Rome, and actually, uh, in his case, sought to practice these philosophies as they were intended. They were not theories, they were practices. So he tried to practice uh, skepticism uh, in a rigorous Pyrrhonian sense. Also, he drew on Epicureanism, on Stoicism, and other wisdoms of the classical age. And it's possible that Pyrrho did, in fact, as I mentioned this morning, uh, was, in fact, uh, possibly influenced by Buddhist ideas. But um, nonetheless, I think it's, for me, always been an important uh, uh, teaching within the tradition that you can become awakened, a Buddha, without having any contact with Buddhism. And the, usually this is understood as those people who become deeply curious about the conditional nature of experience. Paticca Samuppada, the contingent or dependent origination. If you start thinking along those lines and deepening your insight into that way of seeing the world, that can lead you to a similar awakening of the Buddha. And that is a Buddhist tra tradition that sees that. Uh, yeah, here.
Yes, you. Um, and we need a microphone. I know there were some other hands that went up. I'm being very arbitrary, but I'm going to go boom, 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 and then over here. Yeah. Hello? Hello? Okay. okay. Um, I, uh, it's a little complicated. I am um, curious about really wh what you mean by enlightenment. Um, I have sort of given up on that, you know. Um, in the years that I've been practicing, I've really come a million miles. But what remains seems to be stellar distances in which a million miles is nothing. And so I thought it was more important, or I felt it was more important to just keep on um, becoming mm -hmm. uh, a really, a person who didn't grasp, a person who was compassionate, mm -hmm. you know, fail every day, but nevertheless. Mm -hmm. So when I, I, you know, when I hear that I attend sessions here, people are saying, you know, I've been at this for two years and I don't see any sign of enlightenment. You know, I, I worry. <laughs> but I, as you're speaking now, you seem to make enlightenment very achievable. Um, I love Montaigne and I have read the essays, though not recently, and I certainly think of him as relatively enlightened, but hardly a Buddha. And uh, it seems to me that I, I've always given credence, I give, you know, in this very mundane process that I feel that I can only be dedicated to, I've nevertheless given credence to the Zen concept that when you are enlightened, and the Buddha seems in his person to indicate mm -hmm. that, um, the world is entirely different. The world is the world, but it is a very different world. Um, or, you know, everything is the same, but everything is new. And it seems, you know, I can't reconcile that with the rest of your approach um, as to whether enlightenment seems to be rather attainable by degrees when it seems to me you can only really approach it asymptotically, mm -hmm. that no matter how, how fast you go, your speed is constantly cut in half, yeah. and mm -hmm. you never get there. That's right. Uh, I like that idea of the asymptotic. Uh, uh, in fact, someone brought that up at the retreat last week, um, uh, that it is a bit like that, I think. But uh, I mean, it's a, what I was trying to do in this presentation was actually answer that question. And um, let's put it this way: I don't like the word enlightenment. A, it's not a very good translation. B, it very specifically designates a state. 
that you either have or you don't have that you might get to one day. Um, in English, the word awakening has, and again, it's not equivalent, the Pali is, it doesn't, a little bit it does. The awakening can be both understood as a something that you attain, but it can also be understood uh, as a process. And that's how I understand it. I think it's more helpful to think of our practice as a process of awakening. And sometimes we are more awake, more successful in being awake, and sometimes we're less successful at being awake. And um, that model to me is more uh, practical and realizable and doable than when you frame the Buddhist path as starting with delusion and at some many, many lifetimes later you arrive at something called enlightenment. So if you think of it that way, um, then inevitably you're going to somehow feel uh, a long, long way away from your goal. You're going to feel somehow diminished by that very picture. What Zen tradition did that you picked up on uh, is actually profoundly challenged that model. So you get statements by, say, Huineng, who says, um, when an ordinary person becomes awakened, we call them a Buddha. When a Buddha becomes deluded, we call them an ordinary person. <laughs> In other words, it's a, it's a kind of multi-perspectival model. It's a more holistic model, a holographic kind of model. It's that awakening is actually just an, a kind of an, a, a reconfiguration that is possible at any moment. And delusion is a reconfiguration that is possible at any moment. Uh, but we do find in the Pali Canon, um, one of the most, uh, one of the oldest phrases, probably, where the Buddha describes the Dharma as clearly visible and immediate. Immediate meaning atemporal. It's actually something here and now. And the Dharma here, he means by that um, a nirvana. There's another passage where he says nirvana is clearly visible and immediate. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a potential that's implicit in each moment that we respond to a situation. If we respond non-reactively, that is a nirvanic response. If we respond reactively, it's a non-nirvanic or non-dharmic response. And... Um, so I think we must be careful in positing enlightenment as something which is almost unrecognizably different from what we currently think of. I think that's buying into uh, fantasies of perfection that where we take what are inspirational models and ideals like the Buddha image and so on and we take them literally rather than think of them as... Uh, as, 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 as uh, as, as, as representations of what we consider to be our ultimate concerns and values. Uh, and we think that certain people are actually perfect. Um, I've never met a perfect person. I've met some very wonderful um, you know, people who I would seek to emulate in my own life. You also have another phrase in Zen which says, before I practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. While I was practicing Zen, mountains were not mountains and rivers were not ri rivers. After I practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. So there is a phase in this practice where you kind of, everything gets thrown into question. 
And you really have to rethink and reconsider what your life is about. And this inquiry may, in some senses, make you make the world appear really, you know, incongruous and uh, incomprehensible and bizarre and weird. But at a certain point, that gets resolved, and one returns to the everyday chopping wood and carrying water. Yet, I feel from a very different perspective. And it's that perspective and the cultivation and development of that perspective that constitutes a more awake than a less awake way of being in the world. Um, here. Uh, um, in my practice, I'm sort of a um, one Dharma kind of practitioner. I studied in the Tibetan tradition mm -hmm. and the Zen tradition with John Laurie and now I'm in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, but even though I'm grounded in the Thai forest tradition, I still keep reading and studying texts, uh, Tibetan and, and Zen. And um, what I find is uh, that now you have this... Um, I would not. I would hesitate to call it criticism. This observation that since Dao, since uh, Zen is very strongly Taoist mm -hmm. in its inspiration, and Tibetan Buddhism is very strongly influenced by the indigenous shamanism, uh, and while we have dream yoga like that, mm -hmm. um, how should we regard these traditions uh, if we embrace a a definition of, of enlightenment or awakening rather that is uh, at variance with these traditions. Uh, should we regard them with respectful distance or what? How should, how should we, uh, without, without passing judgment, how should we regard these different traditions with different definitions mm. of awakening? No, it's, it's a very good question and I think it's probably the experience of many of us. Uh, I think at one level it represents the fact that we are in a transitional phase, that the Dharma has only come into the modern West relatively recently, as I said, basically since about the 1960s or 70s. Um, and we still haven't got to the point where we can reasonably uh, accept that we have, as it were, evolved into a secular or modern or a contemporary form of the Dharma that has become integral to our life as Westerners in modernity. We're certainly, we're not there yet at all. It'll probably take a lot more time. Uh, if we look at the history of the tradition, we see that, let's say, Tibetan Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism, these took probably two or three centuries before the people had internalized these values and then expressed them and articulated them in forms that were appropriate to their cultural situations. So we're in a phase now where... Um, on the one hand, we're struggling with what it all means for us living in the kind of world we live in, with the sort of education we have and worldview we have. And on the other hand, I think it's still very important that we honor and we go back into the teachings that come down to us through the uh, living exemplars of these uh, Theravadas and Tibetan traditions. Um, what I think is crucially important is engaging with the Dharma um, through human interactions with other people, how they 
for me, my training as a, with the Tibetan Buddhists, for example, had a lot to do with the texts I studied and the meditations I did. But in some senses, what really made the difference was my personal relationship with my teacher as a human being, uh, who I got to know quite well. I was his interpreter. We lived together in a monastery. Um, and that, and likewise, my Zen teacher. It was the embodiment of those teachings in a, in a human life, expressed not by words, but by acts, by what we might loosely call presence. Uh, that's important. And I think we uh, must be careful not to, as this lady was saying, sort of because we don't agree with certain doctrines or we don't like certain rituals, we sort of ignore it. Uh, that, I think, is, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So yes, I do think it's important to go into these traditions. At the same time, uh, we need to keep our critical mind uh, active and to learn to differentiate between those teachings that we'll find in all traditions that are speaking to our common humanity as opposed to teachings that are expressed in terms of a particular cultural um, reality in Tibet or Japan or somewhere. And that's where it gets tricky. It's not easy to know where to draw that line. Uh, and like the idea of reincarnation is so tricky. Is it a cultural thing or is it int integral to the Buddhist teaching? I mean, this is still an open question. I mean, I have a certain view of that. But I, in honesty, I would have to acknowledge it's an open question. So, you know, each of us has to figure this out for ourselves. But I think it is important uh, to think of a secular space as non uh, in a sense, as a tolerant open space from which we can learn from many different sources according to the particular needs that are manifest in our lives at a particular time. Here and then there. Yeah. Yes. Um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about uh, the history of social activism. Because as a person who's very involved with Mm -hmm. climate change issues and very inspired by Bhikkhu Bodhi's mm -hmm. fiery speeches, yeah, which yeah. she gave right in the seat mm -hmm. you're sitting in last year before the climate change mm -hmm. march and with the COP21 coming mm -hmm. up. Um, is there is there a, um, a kind of a moral imperative that comes out of, I mean, I see it as a historical thing and I also see it as a, as a kind of um, non-reactive but Im implied ethical um, requirement that if you do take these principles seriously yeah. you will live a life of service to some extent yeah um, uh, I see the work I'm doing particularly in this book as trying to provide uh, a philosophical ethical and practical framework for addressing the conditions of suffering in our time and to me one of the problems with uh, doctrines like reincarnation, for example, is that to me it somehow um, uh, compromises the degree of total commitment that we might have to, let's say, the issue of climate change. Uh, if we believe in reincarnation, then even if we end up polluting the planet and everyone dies, uh, or if we go up in a nuclear holocaust, at some level... I mean, this might sound a bit bit over the top. It doesn't really matter because every being that gets killed or dies will get reborn according to their karma in some other realm. And life will just keep going. 
So in other words, that view of the world uh, presents this world as just a kind of a staging post that the, some eternal mind is happens to be temporarily here, um, but this is only a, a, which is a short vacation, really. And um, once we're dead, we go on and continue living out our karma in some other realm. So whether or not this place survives or not is, um, in some sense, you know, not the main issue. Um, that's why I would regard a, a secular Buddhism as one that is exclusively committed to the suffering of this world. The here and now. The he- well, not just the here and now, but the here and then, mm. after we're gone, mm. this world, which will way outlive us, that's, to me, that is the, the future, the future life, if you wish, to put it in rebirth language. And uh, that is, I think, of enormous urgency, that we attend to the consequences of our actions individually and socially in terms of the repercussions and effects that later generations will then have to bear the fruit of. I don't see the need for some spiritual entity called Stephen being around when those fruits occur. It doesn't really matter. Uh, The real issue is not reincarnation. The real issue is karma. In other words, action. Action and its effects. That, that is quite logically independent of the theory of rebirth. Completely independent. You can conceptually imagine reincarnation without any uh, moral continuity whatsoever. Okay, I get reborn, but why should that imply that that rebirth is determined by the moral quality of my acts? Maybe it's totally random. Or maybe it's unfair, maybe it's unjust. Uh, so there's two quite separate things going on here. So um, I feel that what we need is a, um, a, co- a, a, a coherent, canonically founded, if we're going to call ourselves Buddhists, then I think we need to make sure that what we're saying has roots in that tradition. And at the same time, it is embedded in the kind of reality that we understand from let's say the natural sciences and that this may be this planet earth may be the one shot we have so i want to take the uh, you know this with with ultimate seriousness and that i feel would be a contribution to giving social action um, a, a rigorous foundation in the ethical and uh, practical teachings of the Dharma. That's what I hear you saying. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, This lady here in the middle and then at the back. Hi. Hi. Um, This is not a question, but I just wanted to give an example of a little mini moment of nirvana. Okay. Um, I was uh, going on the train and my bag hit somebody, actually it like tapped him, it didn't, it, and um, I, we made eye contact and I said, I'm sorry, and we had very nice moment together of smiling, and then I went and sat down, and I saw that actually his legs were sticking out, and in that moment I realized that usually I won't say I'm sorry unless I think I'm wrong, that is my mind first checks my rules, mm-hmm. Did, you know, whose fault was it? But this time, I didn't think about fault. So um, 
there was a human there was a connection just that mm. brief connection and that's a lesson of um of big proportions for me it's not just that one time about heart and mind and the values that thank i give you. no thank thank you uh, i i i do think it's important to uh to valorize is the word I was using, moments in which we are non-reactive, moments like that, little moments of grace, the Christians would probably call it, where our normal behavior is mysteriously suspended. And, um, and to be enormously, uh, uh, enormously aware of the value of such moments. Um, because you said Christian um, moments of grace. Last Sunday, for the first time, uh -huh. I went to a Christian uh, prayer and worship service, mm -hmm. which was two hours of singing mm -hmm. beautiful prayers. Mm -hmm. It was, and ever since then, I have had these moments. Of this little example oh, I gave is one good. of them. Thank you. Thank you very much. The lady there, um, fourth row back. I ask you to elaborate on one sentence in your book. Okay. Embodied attention is an unflinching participation with what sorry, is happening. Sorry, an unflinching. An unflinching, sorry, Alabama uh -huh. accent. An unflinching participation with what is happening now, semicolon, it is indistinguishable in the end from love. You wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I actually, re I actually remember that. Uh, um, well, I, do, I mean, yeah, I, that's what I, I... Embodied attention is the way I translate yonis o mana sikara, um, which is used, often translated as careful attention, but wise attention, wise consideration. Um, but as I mentioned also, probably in a sentences preceding that, passage. Uh, yoniso actually means from the womb. Yoni means womb or vagina, actually. And yoniso manasikara um, uh, actually seems to refer to an attention that comes from our, from our very source. From our, it's a very biological, physical image. And it's also strange that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a feminine image. And so I think of Yonis or Manasikara, which I translate, I, I tried, in the first draft I was translating as radical attention, in the sense of getting to the root. Um, but I chose in the end embodied attention to emphasize that it's not just in the mind, but it's actually coming from our bodies. It's coming from the very ground of our, our physical life. And I was also inspired by another sentence in the Pali Canon, which describes uh, a non-embodied attention is the experience of being eaten up by thoughts so yonisomanasikara is the opposite of the experience of being gobbled up or eaten up by thoughts it grounds it in the body it grounds it also in what lies at the very source or heart of our life itself and thereby that kind of attention when we are in maybe what you described in that example 
um, I think naturally ties us to um, an experience that is more than just attention, but it's actually an attention that is openly accepting of, embracing uh, the totality of the situation at hand. And to that extent will entail a kind of empathetic identification which is the foundation for what we would call love. A visceral empathetic. Visceral empathetic attention, which, uh, again, it being tied with the word womb and, and giving birth, mothering, this is inseparable from a certain love we have of what we give birth to or what our situation gives birth to. Thank you. Okay, we've got time for one more. Someone who hasn't asked a question yet, there at the back. Hello. Um, I think I read it in uh, Richard, or Mark Epstein's book, but uh, I think it, I wanted to ask you what you thought about Richard Gombrich's idea of uh, the Four Noble Truths as a kind of a diagnostic and therapeutic formulation kind of common um, in that area at that time. Mm -hmm. um, for, for example, the first one being the presentation, presentation of the problem, mm -hmm. what you would call chief complaint today in medicine, and the second, call, uh, the second statement being the cause of it, mm -hmm. and third, you know, is there, is, is there a treatment for it, and fourth, the course of treatment. Yeah. Uh, well, this is not Richard Gombrich's idea. This is a very old idea in Buddhist tradition. Uh, that's how I was taught it by my Tibetan teachers. Um, that's how I, that is the standard explanation for uh, the Four Noble Truths as a form of therapy, as it were. But what is interesting is that that, um, although that's part of Buddhist tradition, um, it's nowhere found in the Pali Canon. Uh, that explanation does not appear in the suttas at all. Uh, although I have to qualify that, Recently, uh, Bhikkhu Analayo found a very early sutta, not in Pali, but in some other language, I forget which, possibly early Sanskrit, in which uh, there is a sutta that gives that explanation. So possibly there was at one time also in the Pali text. Um, of course, it does make a certain sense. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't deny that. But... Um, Given that the fact that the Buddha does consider his teaching as uh, uh, that of a physician, you would expect that that idea would be more pre present in the early texts themselves. And that doesn't seem to really be the case, with one, one possible exception. But what I think it also shows is um, how the tradition tried to make sense of the sequencing of the four truths. And I remember at a very early phase in my own study of Buddhism, when I was in my early 20s, it always struck me as odd that um, the four noble truths were phrased in, uh, uh, basically in, in the following order. Effect, cause, effect, cause. Suffering is the effect. You try to find the cause, which is craving. And then you jump to the next effect, which is the solution. Uh, of that um, uh, suffering and then you go back to another cause the eightfold path which leads to the cessation of suffering so I find that clumsy 
and the diagnostic prognostic account uh, which Gombrich and many others have seen as being a, uh, a therapeutic model derived from the Indian tradition, uh, Indian medical traditions of the time, which maybe that might, might, might well be the case. Um, nonetheless, I find it still renders these four truths as presented in a rather, I would say, slightly clumsy sequence. And what, uh, in a sense, con wouldn't say convinces me that but I find strongly persuasive in reading the four truths as four tasks is that you then get a much more uh, you then arrive at a much uh, clearer understanding of why they were presented in that sequence because engaging embracing dukkha first task leads to the letting go of reactivity. The letting go of reactivity leads to the stopping of reactivity and the stopping of reactivity opens up the possibility of another way of life. Now that, when you sequence them in terms of tasks, you see that actually those tasks, one arises out of the, one gives rise to two, two gives rise to three, three gives rise to four. In other words, it it answers that question as to why they're organized in that way. And um, that, I feel, is um, also reflects what the Buddha considers to be another core principle of the Dharma, which is conditioned ori con uh, dependent origination, uh, conditionality. And it's in, in its most succinct form, not the 12 links, but in its most succinct form, conditionality is understood as when this is, that arises, when this is not, that does not arise. And my understanding would be that the four tasks, or the four noble truths, depending on what you call them, are in fact the solution to the Buddha's question, how do I turn this principle of conditionality into a practice and a way of life. And that then, I would argue, uh, then gives rise to the sequence of four tasks when, when task one is, when task one arises, no, when there is task one, task two arises. When there is task two, task three arises. When there is task three, task four arises. In other words, it follows the logic of conditionality, but translating a theory or a principle into a practice. Now, I find that economical, um, doesn't require a lot of interpretation by appealing to Indian medical tradition of the time and so on, although that is a perfectly legitimate reading of the four truths. Um, but my uh, sense is that uh, the four truths came along at a later time the word truth was introduced at a later time, and then the tradition needed to somehow explain why they were presented in that sequence. And the explanation they give is quite good. I don't dispute that. But I wonder if it's not something that sort of emerged at a, a subsequent period when the Buddhist tradition became committed uh, to uh, a, a truth-based practice as opposed to a task-based practice. And I think that's a good point to end. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.